Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I'm Yaga Malark. I'm Thumbs. And I'm Onishiro. And yes, that is the sultry voice of Onishiro that you hear on our waves once again. Welcome back, sir. He has returned to us. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. He's been doing that adult thing, you know, working and then working and then working <gasps> some more and, you know, living several towns over. He crossed mountains to come back to he us. He did. Mountains, rivers, Many. packs of wild dogs. It's mm. it's a thing. A few. Yeah, so welcome back, Oni. It's good to see you. Thank you. So I'm going to get right into it, and I've been talking about Planetfall, this amazing game that I've been really into on the Xbox, and it's a little bit of a combination of like a civilization and a tactical game where you get to control all elements of what's going on. It's really cool. I was, however, at the last time we spoke about this, having difficulty winning at Planetfall. I was finding myself being massively outpointed by all of my opponents, and I was struggling to figure out how I was going to win, because if you're trying to win by just sheer military force, you are betting that you have a superior resource advantage to anybody else in the game because let's face it if you don't have the proper resources you ain't making your army so that's a bad plan to start off with and then trying to win by diplomacy you basically have to get everybody to vote you as the world leader these are all warring factions that hate one another it's not going to happen as easily so what is a person to do to win this game Destroy the world, my friends. Destroy the world. That is the best way to win, and is what I advise, because every single secret weapon that you get to start with has some way to destroy the world, whether it's engulfing it in flames, pulling it into the void, or destroying everybody with a xenoplague of some sort. Everybody's got a little trick that if you research enough in your science, you can destroy the world. And so this is honestly the most reliable way to win the game, is just to take your toys and go home and... Last man standing. Exactly. Exactly. Again, if the world's engulfed in flames and you're the only person wearing the fire retardant armor, hey. Kind of winning? You're doing all right. Yeah. Definitely, definitely plays heavily into what we're going to be covering today. Absolutely. And that's actually, I thought (laughs) that it kind of vibed really well with our conversation topic because after we get over the section about camping, we're going to be talking a little bit about the concept of total war. I know there's very different topics. Camping may seem a very boring topic, but I assure you, when you wake up in a soggy tent, you're going to wish that you had paid more attention to Machiavelli's advice on proper camping because. This is all the stuff I wish I had known when I was 15 and first started camping. Absolutely. Well, if you had known it and and listen to it because let's face it when we were 15, 15 yeah, we, actually, yeah if somebody gave us good advice we wouldn't listen to it not for anything so if you're up for listening to good advice we've got some good advice for you today on camping and some lessons on the concept of total war but before we get into that we have the numbers in from the wolf pack opener we've been teasing y'all with this for several weeks the coordinators were able to get back to me. They're, again, the post-event stuff that goes into putting everything away and getting everything sorted, there's a lot that goes into it, as well as just like a deep sigh that occurs after you've done something that is time-consuming as putting on an event. So so much effort. They were able to get to me, and I very much appreciate them taking the time so that we can present this information to you. And I'm going to turn it over to Sir Thumbs, who's got your report on this. Okay, so before I start, if I get anyone's game name wrong, I'm sorry. These are all names we've only uh, read. We took please our... feel free to correct me. Taking our best stab at it. 
And it's weird fantasy names. I love our game. Guessing pronunciation is an experience. We don't all use the same phonetic system. It's true. Anyways, this is about the 18th Wolfpack opener. It's held at the ISU Horton Fieldhouse. And that is exactly what it sounds like. It's a fieldhouse, which is to say several basketball courts that are normally separated by transitioning walls that have been taken down. And it's just this massive rectangular field that some of the most intense line fighting in the sport occurs on. Yeah, they do videos of it every year. It's absolutely worth checking out if you want to see some just bone shattering line fighting goodness that's exactly where you want to go some incredible min red fighting too mm-hmm. it's supposed mm-hmm. to have awesome min red like all of the red fighters seem to gather up there to play it's their mecca yeah yeah they oh. get about 500 people in this place too 500 500 people crammed in yeah it's line fighting extraordinaire oh. man <laughs> chaos wars ends up somewhere around 400 to 500 people and that's like non-coms and everyone camping for a whole week as with opposed a nice to like, open field with a bunch of space going in all directions yeah yeah and then this is all in one part it mm. sounds incredible it sounds insane oh yeah you got to be prepped for this i mean again this is an event that people really prepare for because it's good it's a good one on the same thing there were no tournaments that day there are no major awards given out this is just a time to fight as we said right right uh but we have the event coordinators the ec was heaven maddox or lavinia who is the person who gave us this information. Yep, so I've been thank in you. contact with her for a few weeks. She's been absolutely wonderful. The head herald was Adam Farrell, or Squire Barguest. Head troll was Nick Tosh, who is Aglar. I think Aglar, yeah. Head weapon check was Squire Havoc. And the head medic was Ian Anderson, Draken. All fine people, and from what I hear, they ran a fantastic event. So thank you guys for putting that on and for going through all the effort that is entailed there. And thank you to everybody who showed up and gave us amazing videos to watch for the next year. Oh, yeah. (laughs) If you haven't checked out Wolfpack Opener, absolutely do so. It's a nice break in the middle of the winter to just go and hit some nerds if you're in the area. Yeah, it's good for you. It's good. So yeah, that's Wolfpack Opener. And if you want your event or your realm or your unit to have a little section on the Art of Wargaming, we are always looking for more information. So please get in touch with myself, Oni, or Thumbs. Real quick, I want to apologize to any 40k players who don't do Belagarth who have been taking the time to listen to us for the last several episodes. I know that Machiavelli hasn't been giving us a whole lot to work with in terms of tabletop wargaming. And again, a lot of this camping stuff, it's common sense, but like when he says make sure that you've got latrines nearby, if you have a hotel room, that's not really an issue. That's already been decided for you. The food is right there. So like the considerations for tournament where you're in a hotel are a little different than for what we're doing in the field. But I promise you're going to be rewarded for your patience. If you've made it this far, you will be rewarded for your patience. We have not forgotten you. The last chapter of Machiavelli is all about siege and fortifications, how to attack them, how to defend on them, which is something we do a lot in 40k. So please stay tuned. We have not forgotten about you. The other thing I wanted to mention before we get into the meat and potatoes here is I know I keep promising this 12-shot video. When I first promised this 12-shot video, it was right before the first serious snow here in Montana. And anybody who lives in Montana knows that the first serious snow kind of locks down any outdoor activities that might have occurred. It's cold. Very cold. And it would take away. I mean, it would be kind of a cool-looking video, but in the same token, I get cold easily. Call me weak if you want. It's probably true. So I'm waiting for a little bit nicer weather so that we can go out and film a nice video that looks nice and that accomplishes what I want to in getting this information to you. So again, sorry that we promised that months ago and it still hasn't been released. We haven't forgotten about it. It's just we're waiting for a good time to do so. Soon. Soon. Yes, very soon. But without further ado... I think it's time to get into the real meat and potatoes of part six of Machiavelli.
So as I already mentioned, there are two main points that we want to touch on for this, this, this main materials section of the show today. The first one is going to be on quartering the army. In the last episode, we talked about some camp tips in regards to food and, and such things like that. This one specifically regards managing the space and choosing the right location. It also has a lot of emphasis on what leaders should do in order to make an army work more efficiently and organized within a camp setting. So these are going to be the focuses for the first part. And then we're going to go into some head games and some ways that you can disrupt your enemy without actually fighting them. And some of these are absolutely things that we would condone in a wargaming scenario. And some of them... Uh... Maybe think twice on a few of the ones we put yeah, out here. Yeah, we're including most of them because they were in the book, honestly. And I don't believe in censoring something because I'm uncomfortable with it. That being said, some of this advice will not make or keep you friends. So take it with a grain Tread of salt. lightly. And we will warn you before we give that advice. Don't worry. But first, before we get into that, we're going to be talking about quartering the army. Now again, this seems like it's boring, but like we've said before, wars are won and lost based on the preparation and the organization beforehand. You can be as good as you want in the fight itself, but if the army itself doesn't know how to work together and isn't well-fed and well-rested, it's not going to count for much does of anything. does not at work at all. So the very first thing that one has to think about when one is getting into a camping situation, which most of our Bellegarth, Dagger here, SCA, Ampguard events are going to be camping situations, unless you're one of those people that gets like an Airbnb or a hotel. I've been that person. I'm not mocking you, but you don't need to worry about digging a ditch system. I'm just putting that out there. But first, choosing the right site. A lot can go into choosing the right site because most of the time the campsite itself is already chosen for you because it's where the event is at. So you're trying to find the right place in that campsite in order to pitch your camp. The first thing you want to think about is making sure that you camp in a healthy place. Now a healthy place is not camping in a bog. A healthy place is not camping with a bunch of rocks directly underneath where you're sleeping. I know camping right next to the river or like lake if there's that area a water area it feels really wonderful the experience is not as good as it should especially if you're not prepared for it for instance a lot of people do not expect the temperature around a body of water to drop it's significantly, so much colder significantly at night so if you're not prepared for a, i've seen people at california experience this they go to an event in the southern california desert and they're expecting nice warm temperatures they set up down there next to the lake because it's pretty and you want to be next to the lake but they didn't necessarily bring proper the cold weather gear yeah the proper cold weather gear in order to experience those temperatures and it, it does become an issue so yeah uh, selecting the right site for what you have and what you got going on it really comes down first off to camping in a healthy place some other things to consider are making sure that you're not too close to latrines latrine smell can really ruin a camping trip i've been right next to the outhouses before and day four or five that becomes a really miserable experience. Yeah, it is the worst. So in, in terms of just like not healthy air to breathe, that is definitely <laughs> up there. On that same line, be nice to your latrines. Be nice to your latrines. Yeah, keep them in good order. That's you it. are the one that will suffer if you are bad. And that doesn't mean go to the latrine across the camp and trash that. No, we're thinking as a community here. Don't do it. Another thing is if you're too close to the road, dust can be kicked up constantly and that can get into food, into water, into tents. So that's a consideration into to have eyeballs. as well. Make sure that you're not camping at the very lowest spot that you can see. Because if there happens to be rain, it will go. To right there. Right there. Rain goes down. Water goes down. That's what how gravity works. <laughs> Thank you, Malark. Yes. This has been sweet. your physics lesson for the day. <laughs> Military science and physics. We do it all here. So yeah, these are some things to keep in mind when you're selecting a site because you're going to be there for two, three, four, seven days. It's for a good time. For people like me also, know what plants you're next to and are you allergic to their pollen? 
That's important too. Knowing the allergies, making sure that you can identify poison ivy and poison oak. You don't want to be camped in those. I had an experience on a field training exercise in basic training where I set up my little bivouac right next to a fire ant nest. Oh, That was not a good time to be sleeping. I came back and my back looked as though I was a leper. Like they ate me alive like every single night. And the drill sergeant was like, why does your back look like that private? And I said, well, when I told you that there was a fire ant nest near my tent, you said deal with it. So... I did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that was fun. Uh, So fire ants, uh, that's not really a problem here in Montana, but if you're camping in South Carolina, which is is. where I was, it is. So make sure you're aware of those kinds of things. And again, uh, these are all going to change based on where you are. The considerations for camping outdoors in Montana are different than Idaho, are different than Tennessee, are different than South Carolina or California. So a base understanding of where you're going is not a bad idea. It might be a bit beyond what most of us are going to do for our vacation, but it's not a bad idea. So after you've established that you're camping in a healthy place, the next thing you want to think about is access. And access to several things. Access to clean water is a very important one. In this electronic age, access to electronics is a good thing. I know I vape, so I need to make sure that I can charge my vape. We all have cell phones anymore, so we all want to make sure that we can charge those and stay in contact with people. Um, I was going to say, I don't really have live, or I don't really have a life at uh, at events. Yeah, well, and I'm not 20 anymore, so I can't just like, I'll disappear Oh, I see what you say. Yeah, I mean, I used to have a policy of the day I left for the event, you knew that when I got to the event site, my phone was going to be off and it wasn't going to be on until I was on my way home. That's just the way I lived. And then I started developing adult responsibilities and adult... Got a wife. I got a wife. You know, I've got a family. So like, you got to be guys, reachable. <laughs> you guys are ruining my medieval experience. Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> Our darned responsibility. So yeah, electricity. Uh, that's something that we didn't necessarily need to think about before, but we definitely want to think about now. Access to the field is another thing. Making sure that you can get, uh, like mm-hmm. camping a mile away from the field guarantees that you will be tired by the time that you reach the field. Or a good warm-up, depending on your level of cardio. Yes. I will be tired. I'll be tired. Um, I'm so ready. Making sure that, you're, that the field is accessible is a good idea as well. Making sure that you have access to supplies, whatever supplies you might need. So like I just said, not camping right on the road, but perhaps next to it so that you can get things in and out easily. That's a good idea. The latrine, you don't want to be too close to it, but you don't want to be too far away from it either. You will regret that decision. Because the one night that you have an issue is the one night that you're going to have to sprint all the way across camp to solve it. So making sure that a latrine is close enough that it is reachable in times of emergency or just necessity is a good idea. And then showers. If the event site provides showers, being close to the showers is nice because by the time you get back to your camp, you haven't ruined your nice shower. Oh, yeah. Access, very important. And then the last thing when considering a site is shade. In certain climates at certain times of a year, for instance, at Thaw Brawl. Shade is not your friend in April yeah. in northern Idaho. So it's the exact opposite of being <laughs> at, say, Ragnarok, where the temperatures and the humidity are reaching choking levels, and every little bit of shade that you can get is really well worth it. It's the difference between a tent that is inaccessible during the day and something that you can go to when you need to. So again, knowing the temperatures and knowing how much shade you're going to need or want is a good idea, too. 
So you've chosen the right site. You know where you're going to camp. It's healthy. You've got access to the things you need and you've got the amount of shade that you want for whatever climate you're fighting in. The next thing to consider is altering that site to suit your purposes because let's face it, not every site is perfect. Not everything has the proportions the way you need it. So what do we need to do to sites to make sure that they are useful to us? One of the first things you want to think of is making sure that you have clear walking areas. This is done from day one, from hour one, from minute one, when people first start arriving and setting up their tents, making sure that you have clear walking areas to get around the camp. This is not just a safety concern, but it's also just an accessibility concern, making sure that you've got clear egress. Having to points. climb through tent stakes and lines is never fun. Especially at night, we've got these lines going out from our tents, and if they're all clustered together, it just becomes a veritable minefield of nylon well, <laughs> at that point. And then add a bad situation, like an ambush, yes, or something where you need to get everybody in armor or half in armor out onto the field immediately, you better have clear paths. Yep. It's a very good idea to have. And in that same idea, you want to have demarked sections. So you want to have a clear place where people are camping, a clear place where food is going to be prepared, a clear area that's like the main campfire entertainment area. All those things should be clearly demarked and separated because people do different things in those sections. If you're changing your clothes, you don't necessarily want to be right on top of the main campfire because you're not putting on a show. Unless you are, that's up to you. But most of us, myself included, are <laughs> not wanting other people to see us in that state. So it's something important to consider. The next thing to consider after you've got your things set up and you've got your demarked areas and your, your walking places is these ditches I talked about. What Machiavelli is talking about in the book is digging actual fortifications, like for a palisade that goes around the camp. We don't need to worry about that so much. We don't have anybody who's going to be invading us off field, or at least not in most situations, unless you're in the assassin's tourney. <laughs> That's a whole set. different rule set. A different rule set. But the ditches I'm talking about. Assassins. I love it so much. I got to get into one soon. Like it's, My next thing is I got to win one. That's like a goal of mine. So yeah, the ditches that I'm talking about are ones specifically for rain. There was a battle for the ring, what was that, two, three years ago? There's... It's been a couple wetter for the rings now. Where the desert out there is not well suited to large amounts of rain falling in a, a small amount of time. The same thing occurs in the east I've seen for a different reason. The ground there is very saturated, so there's nowhere for the water to go. It just turns into mud. It does. But in both cases, you get a lot of water that starts to pool very quickly. The one place you do not want that water pooling is in your tent. A good way to prevent this is to dig a ditch system around your tent. And what this does is allows the water to redirect to a lower area and diverts it away. Again, you want an outlet from from this ditch system leading to a lower zone so it just Otherwise, flows you're just making away. A moat. Which, I mean, that could be cool too, but it doesn't accomplish the point of getting the water away from your stuff. Because again, nobody wants to wake up in a swamp tent. I've woken up in a swamp tent. I'm sure you guys have too. Most everyone in Belagarth has had something similar, at least. Yeah. Most, most people. I've somehow escaped. Yeah. You're lucky, my man. You're lucky because like I, I remember the one time for me it was a chaos wars and I had shown up and I was like one of the last people to arrive in Urukai camp and so I got the a position that was very low on the ground. I, I didn't even really get to choose where my my tent site it's was. It's just what was still available. It was what was available to make matters worse. My rain fly had disappeared. 
Either I had not packed it after the last event, or I had just lost it or something. I'm not sure, but my rainfly was gone. You don't feel like the rainfly is that important until the one time you don't have it? Because the previous, like, two years, there hadn't been a speck of rain. There hadn't been a cloud in the sky at Chaos War. So I'm sitting there and I'm like... You did not make this mistake again. Oh, I didn't. But this time around, I was like, you know what? I don't need to go into town and buy one. I'm not going (laughs) to look around for a tarp. There's never been any rain. I'm going to sleep under the stars. And I wake up at three in the morning after having a very interesting party and i'm very wet i'm very very wet (laughs) and and, in a very cold manner and everything i own every weapon i own every piece of clothing that i own with the exception of my underwear and my socks because i've had a long time habit of packing my underwear and socks in ziploc bags and so thank goodness the one thing i had dry was my undergarments because literally (laughs) everything else i own my bedding everything was soaked It, it took forever to dry out it just took forever it was truly awful. That tent had to be gotten rid of because it smelled of mildew for the rest of forever. <laughs> like, it was bad. But uh, I'm not the only one. I know oh, I'm absolutely not. I've more than once had the tent collapse on me and then it poured rain all night and it all puddled up on the tent and I woke up as like an island in the middle of this ocean of the remains oh, of my tent. Oh, Lord. Yeah, it's always rough. Your whole next day, you know, the things you'd rather be doing, you're not. Because you're making sure that everything you own dries properly and doesn't mold. And it's still going to. It's still going to. You're still going to smell a little stanky for the rest of it. So this is a good way of saying, make sure that you have a rainfly, a tarp, or something of the similar, and dig a ditch. There's been several events I've gone to in the east where people bring planks on purpose because they know that they're going to be digging a ditch network throughout the camp, and the planks are to provide stepping areas where you can walk without stepping into a ditch. Like, they just come prepared for that because it's... Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's I, the way of it. I have multiple times while we've chatted about this thought to myself, I would laugh my ass off if I went camping in one of these events and saw a network of ditches. So apparently I need to keep my eye out. Because it happens. It happens. That's out of control. So just as important as, as digging these ditches is making sure that you're prepared for, like we said, these weather eventualities. Because they're different for every region. You're going to see different maledictum <laughs> manifest in different climates. For instance, like we were saying, rain is very, very common in the east. They come prepared for it. They bring tarps. I was absolutely amazed at one of the events I went to out east with my Dark Angels brothers and sisters because it rained the entire week. And yet we had a fire going the entire week. And the way that was managed was with this bizarre tarp contraption that was constructed above the fire that it served two purposes to let the smoke out and to keep the rain out as well it was very cool and it was this nice meeting place that everybody could go and sit and and be together and be dry so that is a good thing to remember as well those tarps can also provide shade if you've got trees that are not large leafed trees the shade factor can be provided by a, a nice tarp system up above windbreaker too a nice windbreaker yeah in some places like southern idaho where the wind can get real whipping a windbreaker is always a nice thing as well but reinforcing your camp comes with a lot of things you want to make sure you stake your tent down and you want to make sure you stake it well because sometimes things happen that you just can't prepare for. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, like we said, strong winds can absolutely be a factor. I've, I've had tents try to fly away on me at events. I've come back and somebody's been flying my tent like a kite because it tried to lift up and go away. I put rocks in it after that. But I mean, that's not even the most <laughs> dramatic learned. thing that can happen, you know? Yeah, I've told both of these cats before, but it's absolutely the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. I was in Idaho for a thaw brawl maybe seven, eight years ago. Okay, okay. It was a hot minute. And I was walking down the path with a friend of mine 
past perp. He was perp at that time. The artist formerly known as perp. The artist (laughs) formerly known as perp. Exactly. And we were walking down the path and the winds were being absolutely brutal. And we saw this huge dust devil that like tore down the field and then hit the road and was throwing rocks everywhere. We were like, whoa, some wizardry. And then it, it broke off the path and almost disappeared. We were like, well, that was that was crazy. That was strange. Right? Mm-hmm. And then it hit this uh, string of tents. And it went, like, right over this first one, like, right in front of it. Right almost over the second one. And it was messing them up. And then it hit this third one right on top of it. And we watched a tent. Literally, it liquefied. It <laughs> tore the stakes right out of the ground. It swirled up kind of like one of those water cyclones you see. Oh, boy. And everything, <laughs> like, spout. yep. And everything just condensed in the bottom of it. And it just flew everything huge way up in the air. There's, like, a row of trees back there. Oh, he's making, covered. like, a mushroom cloud motion Boom. with his arms right now. <laughs> That was probably super amazing for everyone except for the person in there. Yeah, it was terrible. And you couldn't even help because all their stuff was just like up in the trees. Right. It was like gone. (laughs) So like there was nothing anyone could even do, you know, other than get the tent down itself. And I'm not sure if that could have been prepared for. There will be on on occasion. The uh, act of God situation. Yeah, the act of the God situation (laughs) where where Zeus reaches down and just swipes a tent up and flings it everywhere. This is mine now. Yeah. <laughs> but barring that, there's a lot that you can prepare for. So yeah, we've gone over altering the site to suit your needs and picking a good site in the first place. Now, let's say we've done both of these things. We've got our camp set up and everything is moving. Now it falls to the leadership. It falls to the captains, as they're called in Machiavelli's text, in order to better organize the efficiency of the camp itself. And this is done in many different ways, but he provides some very direct advice on how to do that here. The first thing he advises is making sure that you help newcomers set up their stuff. And this is something that I would advise too. Nothing is more tedious to getting a unit moving than every single person coming in and spending a two-hour session setting up their tent and getting their gear in order. How much faster is it when everybody helps out? When you see somebody roll up and everybody's like, oh, somebody's More here. Hands, less work. Better get them. And this is something that I've seen happen in a lot of the top tier units. Like it's something that they just do. I'm not trying to blow my own horn here, but I know the Dark Angels do it. Somebody rolls up to a Dark Angel camp. Everybody's like, okay, cool. And they'll get up off the campfire, go stop doing whatever they're doing. Go help whoever it is, set up their tent, get them situated. And then they get to join in faster. Oh, yeah. And they're not tired because you've already gotten off the road. You've traveled. Like, the last thing you want to do is spend, like, two hours setting up a tent by yourself while all your friends are off having fun. So make sure you're helping the newcomers set up their stuff. And this doesn't even have to be from your unit or your your realm. Like, you see somebody across the way who's struggling putting their tent up. Lend a hand. Lend a hand. It's a nice thing to do. The nice thing is pretty much every event I've ever been to, there's been people who do this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've benefited from these people constantly. So I'm saying that they are lifesavers. And you can really start somebody's event off the right way because nothing puts a smile on your face than somebody showing compassion. Somebody doing a nice act of kindness that just lifts you up. And if everybody's doing that, then everybody's event is starting well. You got a really good time brewing right there. And even if they don't actually need your help, or if you don't need their help when they come to you, you know, just smile. Thanks. Okay. The offer and is nice, everyone yeah. feels better for it. Absolutely. It's the feel goods all around. We're looking for feel goods all around in this section. So the next thing, what's that? No. <laughs> I'm just going to say, fact is, like, just takes so much less time to set up a tent with two to four people oh Mm -hmm. it does it really does and again it integrates them it gets them involved if you want to hit the field you've got another body 
to throw into the mix, it's a good thing. It's always a good thing. And the next thing is when you're setting up your tents, Machiavelli advises that you make sure that the officers are camped together. The importance of this is that if a crisis arises, the officers or the leadership are able to quickly confer and devise a solution. If you've got them spread out throughout the camp, then people are like, oh, where do we go? Who's in charge? Like, it's all over the place. But if the leadership are all in one place, then everybody knows where to go if there's an issue. Everybody knows where to go if they need orders. Everybody knows where to go if they need to know when supper is. Like, it's just a good idea to have, this is kind of like we were talking about before, with having clear demarked sections to the camp. Making sure that the officers are one of those clear demarked sections are a good thing. Because then it also encourages the officers to communicate and everybody's on the same page. It's oh, good yeah. stuff. And again, this is something that I see a lot of the top tier units making sure that they do. It's just good for that command and control section. Absolutely. It's a little easier at our smaller events too, because it's not like camp next to each other and then thousands of other people, but like six other tents. Right. This obviously is a little different when you guys start getting into the larger events, especially as people are rolling in. Sometimes you're just putting people up as they arrive because you've got a limited amount of space. And so you've got to do it as people arrive and you can't necessarily put as much thought into where the officers are going as opposed to the other people. That being said, if you've got the space and you've got the time to be able to do so, this is a good idea if you're able to accomplish it. And also, a consideration I think should be added here about the distance from the fire and the relative noise level that you will be experiencing while sleeping. I always camp on the outside edge for this exact reason. Yo, I've made the mistake of camping right next to the fire because I've been like, oh man, you roll out of bed in the morning and like breakfast will be right there. That's great. But the other thing that's right there while you're in bed is everybody who's not. It's rough. so loud. And if you're not the hardest sleeper in the world, it's just not a fun place to be. Only could you find there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and in my case, it's a good thing. For sure. Because then when there is a bunch of stuff going on, it will wake me up and stuff. And, you know, in a bad situation, like an ambush or something, if I'm sleeping on the edge of the camp, I won't as easily wake up to a situation that may be starting on my edge of the camp. That's a good point. Whereas somebody like me, who will wake up when the cricket sneezes. You're good on the outside. I, I would love to be on the outside <laughs> of the camp. Yeah, that's where yeah, I belong. Come wake me up, dude. You'll hear me. Yeah. Oh, you'll hear me. <laughs> So yeah, that's just a consideration. If it's your first time, most people who've been to an event or two, that is already known. But for me, my first time going to an event, I did not know that. I was way too close to the fire and it did not work out for me. I definitely have learned that the hard way. Before. And I've done it since then too. It wasn't like I learned it and then was like, oh, I'll never do that again. I definitely convinced myself a few times that it would be a good idea. And I was <laughs> always wrong. I've definitely done that again. Uh, the other thing, when we're talking about designated setup zones, when we were talking last week about having a central area, like a, a central tent where people can gather, a good idea for this is to make it a crafting area. I don't mean macrame. I mean, if you want to do macrame, that's fine. But what I'm talking about specifically is making sure that the weapon repair and the garb repair stuff is all in one central location. Somebody needs green tape, they know where to find green tape. Your green tape, your duct tape, some double-sided tape generally... Mm -hmm. Templates, templates, if somebody's got those, that's always nice to know if your stuff passes before you take it to the weapons checker. Saves them some time. Saves you time. Saves yeah. you time. Yeah, whatever crafting stuff might be necessary, having it in a central location where everybody knows where to find the scissors is always a good idea. Uh, not to say that one shouldn't try to be paired on their own, but part of the purpose of camping with a unit or camping with your realm is so that it's... So you can share. So you can share stuff. So the crafting stuff is another huge part of that. What do you got? We'll save it for later. <laughs> I'm making some strong connections to something that I hadn't thought about before. 
That's what this show is all about. Mm-hmm. And if somebody on the show is having those connections, I'm hoping that it's happening on the other side of oh, the airwaves too. I'm oh, sure. Twitter with an anticipation. It'll all come together in and the end. Anticipation. So you got your, your setup designated craft area. Because like I said, it's a good idea. And everything's moving smoothly. The next consideration is rewards and punishments. Because let's face it, if everybody was perfect, we wouldn't need a hierarchy or any sort of system of laws. But because humans make mistakes... There needs to be a way to punish. And because humans can excel, there needs to be a way to kind of honor that and make sure that people want to do that more. And this whole rewarding publicly, which is what Machiavelli advises, the point of it is to encourage that behavior. Because if other people are like, oh, look at Jim there. Jim did X, Y, and Z, and he's being honored before everybody. That's pretty cool. I'd like to be honored before everybody. So it encourages more people to behave in that way. I even do that on our Facebook group, to be honest with you. Yeah. If I see someone doing really well in the realm, they're volunteering a lot or their fighting has been clicking lately. I try to be like, hey guys, look at so-and-so. Yeah. Positive call-outs. It's a really good thing. Again, it encourages that behavior. And it also makes sure that that person continues doing that behavior. Because if they're doing right and nobody's confirming that they're doing right, I mean, there's nothing to necessarily tell them that they're doing the right thing. But if they're being acknowledged for doing the right thing, that encourages the people in your unit or your realm to continue doing that behavior, which is always the nice thing. You want people doing positive things because we honor people in this sport for all sorts of cool things. We honor people for best garb, for best herald, best volunteerism. Like there's some cool stuff that we're able to encourage people to do. Don't forget best death. Best death? I ruined my spine. I ruined my spine one chaos of yours. We're earning that one. No. Don't say it like that. (laughs) Two really nice blue swords out of it. How long did they serve you? I think one of them is still being used by the gladiators. Oh. oh. It was one of the the, that old like forged foam tech that like you could drag that through a nuclear wasteland and it would still function. I know the one. Yeah, I love that stuff. I mean, it was clunky. It was a little clunky. Their stuff now is so much more streamlined, but there was just something invincible <laughs> about that early Forge World tech, you know? Cleaver. Forge World? Am I saying that right? No, Forge that's Foam. Forge Foam. Forge World is 40k. See, I, I told you 40k players would be something Forge for World you. Forge World does here. make good stuff. They do. It's super gorgeous. <laughs> they do. It's expensive, but it's very good if you're looking for something like that. It's, it's fun. <laughs> so on the other side of that, you're, you're rewarding publicly. You're making sure that you encourage that good behavior. Machiavelli recommends two different things for punishment. In one circumstance, he says that punishment should be meted out privately. In another one, he says not only should it be public, but it should have group participation. And the private, when he says that certain things should be handled privately, he's talking about executing people who are guilty of sedition people who are planning mutinies or spreading malcontent throughout the ranks. These are the people that he says you need to deal with quietly. And his reasoning behind it isn't so that they will not have their feelings hurt. It is so that that sedition does not spread further. Because if they are being heard in a public forum, there's a chance that other people might agree with them, is Machiavelli's point. My point on that one is that if people are called out in public for something that embarrasses them, it can occasionally cause worse behavior. Now, I'm not talking about repeat offenders who have been spoken to multiple times and continue to behave in the same poor manner. I'm talking about somebody who may not know that what they did was wrong. And calling them out privately is a far better way to get a good reaction because it allows them to correct it without having embarrassment on top of all of that. Yeah, just kind of like, hey man, you took... Whatever. A little too far here. Mm -hmm. Bring it back. Generally, that's all you need to tell most people in our sport, luckily, because it's a hobby, not an actual war. Right. And most people are absolutely willing to correct their behavior. Uh, Most people are out here to have a good time. They're not trying to upset anybody. They're not trying to ruffle anybody's feathers. 
And so a nice, kind correction is really what most people need. But Machiavelli says that if somebody falls asleep on watch, for instance, that he should basically be stoned to death by his squad mates. At that point, the punishment becomes very public. But again, what we're dealing with in something like Belagarth is not compulsory. Nobody is here as an actual conscript. Everybody is here because they choose to be. So engaging in particularly cruel forms of punishment is going to backfire spectacularly. Does not fly in the era of HR. Let's just put that out there. So making sure that the punishment fits the crime and making sure that you have a way of dealing with people in such a way that it does not disrupt the harmony. That's the biggest thing. Because again, if you're calling people out for minor infractions, then why are they going to stick around? You just seem like a tyrant at that point. But if you're calling them out and you're doing it in a subtle, nice way, people are like, oh, okay, they're just looking out for me. It's a total difference in how it's received. But again, if you're running an army the way that Machiavelli advises it... Rules are a little different. You can also execute people in Machiavelli's (laughs) army, which... I mean, I suppose we can, but you're going to go to jail for a long, long time. Yeah, don't, don't or, do it. Or, you know, you could just kick them out of the unit. That would be the equivalent to... That's true. That's, that's true. Right. Yeah. Uh, kicking them out of the unit, that's a... That's an execution. That would kind of be the execution. Apparently there. we're Mr. Literals today. Or... <laughs> yeah, that's okay. So, so you've got that going on. People are being rewarded proportionately and people are being punished privately. And again, a punishment only works if the leadership is following through on their end of the deal. Machiavelli says that you cannot punish somebody that you haven't paid because you don't have a leg to stand on. They're not your employee at the moment. So you have to make sure, in our case, we're not necessarily paying people, but as leaders, we have a responsibility to our people to treat them fairly, to try to act in such a way that promotes them and their welfare. These are the things that are expected of us. This is the payment that we give our unit. If we're not doing that, any punishment that we met out is not going to have the ammunition that it needs to, to succeed. That's just the way of it. You have to have the moral high ground. You have to maintain the moral high ground if you want these punishments to mean anything. Otherwise, it's just schoolyard children being mean to each other. So the last thing here, or this isn't the last thing. Sorry, I'm misreading my notes. It's a little dim over here right now. So let's say you've got your good rewards and you've got your good punishments. Everything's flowing there. The big gelling agent behind any group whether it's a unit or a realm, is collective lore. Because in Machiavelli's time, he's talking about religion. Everybody was a part of the same faith. Everybody followed the same God. They prayed the same way, for the most part, in these armies. Everyone being Catholic really works in someone's favor. It does. And so people were able to have their spiritual needs met, and the army was able to use that as a uniting factor. In something like Belagarth, it's not very possible to get everybody together having the exact same actual creed, and it's kind of against the spirit of our community to kind of segregate ourselves in this way. But we accomplish this in the form of group lore, telling stories about ourselves to each other that bind us together. A really good example of this, from my experience, is in the Horde. They're just amazing at having this lore that is built on itself from internally. They use all original stuff from people within. They have the whole rank called the Witch Doctor, where you have to be well-versed in the lore and contribute to it. It's incredible, and everybody participates. People show up, even people without from the same unit will we'll show up. We'll still participate with Monster Horde. Yep. Like, not Monster Horde, but with the, the Monster Lore of Horde. Yeah, because it, it's that powerful. These stories are that powerful, and what, people will show up to watch these trials because they're very compelling oh, stories. They're fun. They're, they're fun. always fun. So that's a very good example of a group that uses that lore to bind themselves together because I can't really think of a unit that uses lore to that extent the way that the Horde does. They're really good about it. Even if it's not to that extent, though, it's still really important. Sure, sure. I've had a few people come talk to me about like, oh, I want to make a new unit. What do you think? Because they know that I did it back in the day. Mm -hmm. 
And when I tell them, like, the first thing, I'm like, what is your thing? In our case, we were mercenaries. In Oni, you and the Shinigami are all demons. Some people want to be the baddest people on the field. But something to bind the unit together is going to make the group last so much longer than just like, uh, those three. We're together, but what's your thing? We're, and... we're here, aren't we? Well, and to bring it back to even some of our other authors and, like, Someone on the outside could say Shinigami were demons and stuff, but it's about the moral compass. True. Yeah, That's yes. Right. As, as Sun Tzu would have said, that moral compass that unites you all together, the lore absolutely accomplishes a lot of that. Exactly. Yeah, that's the big thing is a goal. Even if you use a race or a tribe or, you know, even just a common mentality, it's about the mental compass. I dig that, that way you're all following, you all have the same north. I dig that. You know, mm -hmm. even if it's a little different left to right. Because if you ask Horde what their priorities are, they'll tell you separate things because they're all individual people. But if they tell you who they are, they're Horde. They're Horde. Yeah. And Horde win. Horde win. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I never joined the Horde, but I love being in Horde camp. They're a fun camp to be in. They're great guys. Yeah, always worth a stop by. And partially because of this, they're so united. You get in there and you can just like feel the bonding agent of those combined stories. So again, if you're not a part of an established unit, and you're and like Thumbs said, if you're looking to start one, this is a really good thing to keep in mind. These stories that you tell to bind it together. Because again, we don't all have Catholicism, you dirty heathens. Catholicism. <laughs> That's very true. Oh, you know. Hey, parts of us does, you know, we're... I suppose that's We're true. open. We're open to it. <laughs> <laughs> so the last thing, this group efficiency, the things that a captain can do or the leadership can do to bind a group together is to get everybody together, usually in the morning for a group exercise of some sort, whether that's actual exercise or stretching or a warm up of some sort. This can really bind a group together and unite you in purpose. I know the Dark Angels, we have a, I don't know if it's an official tradition, it just seems to kind of happen where we'll end up at the field together and we'll stretch together. And then we'll do 2v1s to warm us up for the field. Great fighters. way to start your day off. Yeah. And it's with your friends and you know how they fight. And so it's this nice, easy rhythm that you can get in, get your blood up a little bit. And then when you get on the field, you know how they're doing too. Like if I find myself next to Ashen in the line and I was sparring with him earlier and I know that he's really on fire and he's just like in the mood today, I know we can press it a little harder than normal. Whereas like if he's fighting against me and he's like, oh, you know, Mark's dragging a little bit, he knows to take it a little bit easier because I'm going to be dragging a little bit and so oh, this yeah. can help familiarize yourself with your teammates as well it's really good and i'm sure other people do the same thing i know that uh, naga and cannabis of the gelf they run a yoga circle that's extremely popular every morning at chaos wars and it's not just for them it's for everybody yep. you'll, you'll see people from every unit it's hilarious watching an urukai sit next to a god squad next to <laughs> horde member all doing the yoga poses. Hey, but that's beautiful, man. That's oh, everybody. Awesome. That's, that's unity of the community. I love it. Yeah, I know. That was, I didn't even intend <laughs> for that. that was, very nice. Oh, very yes. nice. Thank you. So yeah, this is very important though, because again, it gets everybody on the same page. It gets everybody limbered up. It has a, a practical application that also is extremely beneficial socially. And which is really the whole point of leadership is to do things that are practical, but beneficial to your organization. If you're not a, if you're a leader and you're not trying to accomplish those two things, your priorities are not where they should be. So that's what I had for quartering the army. Did you guys have anything other to contribute there? No, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Make sure, in the same vein of make sure you have food and make sure you have, make sure you have a place where you're comfortable. Make sure the camp works. And these are just some piece of advice for doing that. But before we talk about our battle report today, we had one other thing that Machiavelli talks about pretty heavily in this chapter, and that is head games. Yes. 
Now, again, some of these are very ethical. There's something that we would absolutely advise you do against your friends because nobody's actually going to get hurt. A few of these we're only going to talk about for historical accuracy because they're in the blessed book. Yeah, maybe on the don't do this line. Yeah, we'll be we'll be making sure to put up those disclaimers, like I said. But the first thing, and we already did a section on this, if you want to have a more detailed report on what exactly a spy is and how to run a spy network amongst your group of friends, there's an episode earlier <laughs> on Sun Tzu when it comes to using spies. We're just going to go it's over the it briefly final here. chapter, isn't it? It's like one of the last two. Yes, it's the last chapter yep. of Sun Tzu. So we did, we just go over, went over this recently. But from Machiavelli's perspective, he says the spies fall into a several different categories. The first one is in the ways of ambassadors, people that you send in full face that everybody is aware of who secretly report back to you what is going on in that court. And everybody does this. If you have ever wandered from camp to camp to camp at night, seeing your friends and socializing, you're technically being an, an ambassador. ambassador the whole time. The whole time. Now, whether or not you report back to your people and have like an organized spy system or not, that's something else entirely. But, but you will be representing your unit or your realm or your whatever too. So like not just report, but people will be reporting on you. Yep. So whatever you say becomes common knowledge. If you say all Stygians are this way and you're a Stygian, then somebody who's not Stygian is going to go, yeah, makes I'm sense. I'm going to listen to that. Yeah, that's right. So the representation is another part of this. The next type of spy that he talks about are deserters, which is to say either people who come over from the other team who have become disillusioned with what they've got going on, who you can pump for information, or false deserters that you send from your unit to go and infiltrate somebody else under the pretext of quitting. The Battle of Redcliffe that we covered a long time ago at this point. Washington spy from last week. Yep. There were several different places where you've got this specific thing occurring, where you have a deserter who isn't actually a deserter. It's something to be watched for. A double agent. A double agent. Yes. So, they're good to have, bad to give away, obviously. And then he talks about capturing prisoners. Now, again, for us, this isn't literal. I'm not expecting you to go on the field and force somebody down at sword point, wrap up their hands, and march them back to your you're camp. Mine now. It's a little excessive, <laughs> unless you're into it and you guys planned it out beforehand, mm. in which case, you know, RP to your heart's content. The prisoners I'm talking about are the times that I've been on the field and I've met somebody and I've been like, wow, this person is really cool. Like, you I back to camp with them. And I went back to camp with them. Not my camp, back to their camp. I'm technically a prisoner at that point by this analogy. I know it's a bit of a stretch, but I'm going back it with works. them. You know, I feel it. I may be there of my own volition, but a prisoner nonetheless. And I can then also be pumped for information. So this is all to say that people who come to your camp, people who come from the outside, should always be treated well. Because not only will they then spread a good image of you to everybody they talk to about you, but they're also more likely to give you useful information. And useful information is always useful. Which is the point of it, I guess. So yeah, treat them well. Remember back to Sun Tzu. Treat your spies exceptionally well so that they continue working for you. So you got the spies thing going on. And let's say that your opponent has an army and you're aware of it and they are a lot stronger than you want them to be. You could fight them. You might lose. It might be a Pyrrhic victory or it might just be a complete washout. You don't want to fight them. How do you get your enemy to move where you want them to go or to back off of what they're doing? without attacking the army. This is one of the first instances where a military theorist proposes what we will now come to know as a concept of total war, which is waging war not against a military infrastructure, but against a country itself. 
This wasn't really done before, because in most wars that have been fought in human history, they have been fought over resources. And the whole point of invading a country at that point is to take over its infrastructure and take its resources. You if, pretty much have to go back to, like, the Bronze Age to find this before this. And so if you're wanting to take a country intact, total war does not make sense. But in several cases that have been presented throughout history, total war has absolutely brought an end to the conflict. Now, at what cost? We're actually going to be talking about that a little bit later. So that, what we were talking about, that redirection, those are all different examples of a diversion or a distraction. Again, Sun Tzu goes over this far more artfully than Machiavelli does, considering that Machiavelli is the father of linear warfare. But he still has a good mind for the idea of, if you want to attack on the left, make a feint on the right to make sure that they are like, oh, and pay attention over there, and then you can do what you want without as much resistance. Even linear tactics, you can do this. A feint is a feint is a feint, and anybody can benefit from it. You don't need to be Mongolian mm -hmm. to use a feint. Now we're about to get into a section that we're going to call the restricted learning section. We're sharing it with you, dear readers, <sighs> under the pretext that you are responsible individuals that can learn something and not necessarily use it. If you are not I don't know what to do. I, I can't bar you from listening to this podcast, but uh, I have a need to bad, bad <laughs> talk about you. things. Bad, naughty. Naughty. You're so naughty. <laughs> this is good information to know if someone is trying to do this to you as yeah. well. It's a good point. Because one of the things that Machiavelli recommends is if you're going against a strong army that is united in purpose, the best way to turn them against one another is to fabricate a scandal. Simply through gossip and rumors. You can bring an army to its knees. You can also do it by making somebody look as though they are more favorable to something than they're not. There's a lot of different ways to fabricate a scandal, but all of them are unethical, and all of them will not make you friends. People who are considered gossips are not typically trusted. And this is true across all walks of life, not just in the wargaming community. Well, and I've definitely met people who made up stories, and when you find out they made up the story, even if it's not a big deal, there's not much trust there. That like Yeah, the credibility's it's, gone. It's not gonna go great for you in yeah. the future. Yeah, so this is not advisable to do, but it can happen. If suddenly you notice that people are at each other's throats and there's no discernible reason, but you've noticed somebody hanging around that may or may not be whispering secretly to people in the corners, pay attention to it. You know, you may have a snake in the ranks. Be prepared. Be prepared, as Scar says. So that's something that again you shouldn't do, but always look for. Always look for somebody who's trying to break apart this unity we're talking about by fabricating something that's just simply not true. And the best way to defeat this is just with open, honest communication between all members of the organization. If everybody feels they can come to Captain and say, Captain, is this true? Then they will not think that there are secrets. But if there's a lot of secrets, if there's a lot of obfuscation when it comes to information, then people might be inclined to believe this. So, I believe in open, honest, transparent communication between all members because it keeps this exact thing from being a problem in your army. The last thing we're going to talk about in this particular section is using fear to motivate your soldiers. I am not a fan, personally, nope. because I find that there are far better things to use to motivate than fear. It largely involves lying too much. Largely involves lying too much. And again, if those lies get found out, it can undermine your credibility as a leader. That being said, I'd be lying if I told you that leaders haven't throughout history used this all the time all to motivate the their troops. Time. Whether it's dehumanization of the enemy or exaggerating the situation that they're in, a, a nice dose of fear can bring people together and make them fight in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. Now again, in something like Belagarth, where nobody's actually dying... There's no actual resources at stake and everybody's going to get back up and fight again tomorrow and everybody is going to be coming to the next event. Doing something like this undermines your credibility and drives your force apart long term. Short term, yeah, sure, it can work. But long term, it's not an effective strategy. Oni's looking like he disagrees with me. Oh, man. 
this is going to be a great wrap up. Oh yeah. <laughs> I the connections that are here are really really interesting. I like them. So, I'll wait. I mean, Oni's excited for the battle report. Oh. No, I mean even before the battle report, just these two sections. Oh, the similarities and connections are huge. Do you are you seeing the connections between the two sections? Between the two sections of camping and this mind games. Absolutely. I mean, a camp that is well organized and well situated is going to be far less susceptible to these mind games. They're opposite. You are literally doing the opposite thing for your men than what he wants you to do on the offensive. And you can even change targets and it will completely change this. I agree completely. I don't think using fear on your own soldiers is a proper motivation. But if you're talking head games, fear against your enemies is a completely different situation. Oh, yeah. Just like when you turn these around on your own men, you know, you're talking about what's the important thing you're saying. Clear communication between Mm -hmm. all members. The most important part that hinges all of this stuff on your side is your leader. If they're not there for open communication... If they're not, you know, your camps aren't set up to help your men and make it easier on them. Make it you know? healthy for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's They're all exactly opposite, which is what he wants you to try to do to your enemy. And it shows the effects. That's the thing. These are not good things to do to any kind of situation that you want to maintain or leave there. It will destroy it. True. Because the exact opposite is maintaining it and keeping it together for what you want to be safe. Yeah, I can dig that. Yeah. Organize your troops while disorganizing the enemy troops. I like it. And it's very Machiavelli. <laughs> it's very Machiavelli. Again, everything we've heard here does not defy the man's character. But if there's any other wrap-ups that you guys have real quick... I think we're all set for the next set. We're all set. All right. Well, I hope you guys are buckled in because we are about to talk about another sensitive subject. And we're going to try to approach it as sensitive as possible because we know that this is a sore point for some people. But we're going to be discussing Sherman's March to the Sea. Sherman's March to the Sea is one of the more controversial topics that I think that we've covered on this show. Much in the way of the Allied firebombings, there is a lot of cultural trauma related to this particular event. And I do realize that we have listeners who are in the South. And so, with a mind to your situation, we are going to try to be as sensitive to this topic as we can be while still discussing it. it, It's tough. It's hard. It's... There's a human cost to it. And again, the Union won, but we're going to go over what exactly they had to go through to win that war. And that was basically this campaign, which was Sherman's March to the Sea. Now, this occurred between the 15th of November and the 21st of December in 1864. As we've said, it was between the Union General, Sherman, and the Confederacy, led mostly by Lieutenant General Hardy, but with a lot of militia, local militia, who were pitching in throughout as well. So This is kind of a constant thing in the South, it in is. the Civil War. In particular in like this area, because the main generals are all at the front right now. So what was left to defend wasn't the strongest, but they were extremely determined, and they knew the ground, which is extremely important in any conflict. But Sherman was not out to engage armies here. Like we had talked about in that head game section, Sherman was engaging in one of the earliest examples in the modern period of total war, which is waging war against a country and not against an army. Because even though the Confederate army was constantly undersupplied and constantly outnumbered and outgunned, 
They were whooping the Union. They were holding up so good throughout this entire war. It was great. It was amazing. Lee was an incredible commander. And so Grant and Sherman knew that they needed something else to break it. Because if this war lasted too much longer, it was just going to devastate both economies. And so this was the solution that was proposed. And this was after the Atlanta campaign, which took place between May and September of 1864. And the idea was that it was going to follow the meta of the Vicksburg and Meridian campaigns, which is to say that they would be living off the land, heavy foraging, and that that they would be using the livestock and crop production data from the 1860 census, which I think that is so funny that they were using the official government data to track down. this farm does great. They've got chickens. I want some chickens. (laughs) Chickens sounds great tonight. This is why people are paranoid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're planning to rebel against the government, maybe, yeah, maybe you should be paranoid. Uh, (laughs) Oh, touche. Living off the land like this used to be way more common Yes. But, I mean, as we were talking about the style of war last week with the Revolutionary War and the very end of it this week with Civil War, that had become much less common. Yeah, it the, had been the, two armies fighting on the outside of the town. And the main the population. Civ- yeah, and yeah. the civilians are not really in that much danger. Yep, very almost genteel in a lot of ways. In, in fact, in the early battles of the Civil War, local people would turn up and have picnics to like watch the battle and of course that quickly became <sighs> not a thing horrifying yeah it's it's horrifying and you can't really control where cannon shot is going yeah. sometimes and so it it's but like at the battle of manassas that absolutely happened Real. so but this is different this is late in the war people know the destructive force of it but you raise an excellent point the normal way of moving as an army at this time was to maintain really good supply lines maintain very good lines of communication all of the advice that we've been giving so far in this show that was the meta And what Sherman was doing here was going completely off-grid. No supply lines, no lines of communication. He just had a mission, and he either accomplished it or died there. So this is kind of a burning the boat scenario. You know, there's no going back. We either succeed or... Yeah, you know. this is crossing the Potomac. Apparently, I'm referencing last week's episode a lot. But crossing the Potomac, crossing the Rubicon, like yeah. this is the this is a no coming back kind of thing for them. And Lincoln was very uncomfortable. He was originally extremely apprehensive about this operation because, again, the North wasn't doing that great in terms of, like, the tactical combat and every single fighting force was needed. So this, if it failed, was a waste of, you know, 60,000 highly trained veterans at this point. Well, and even on top of that, the goal of the Union in the Civil War was not to destroy the Confederacy forever, but was to stop... The secession. Yeah, to stop the secession, to keep the Union together, not kill everyone in the (laughs) South. (laughs) Right. Now you guys need us. (laughs) You can't leave. And I mean, and and, and part of the issue was the South was one of the big agricultural centers of the Union at that time. So when the South decided to secede, they were cutting off a huge amount of supply to the North. And so like you said, the overall point of it was not to destroy them, but it was to bring them back into the fold. Yeah. And so this did kind of seem to go against that. And like I said, Lincoln was very apprehensive about it because as they were going through, the whole plan was to destroy agricultural systems, industrial systems, and transportation systems, which are like all of the infrastructure needed to like have a country run well. Well, especially by this point, the trains are there as mm-hmm. much as as soon as something like the train exists, it becomes absolutely essential. Especially if your opponent is using it. Yeah. You know, if your opponent can get around from A to B using light or like a very high speed form of transportation and you cannot and you have a horse mobility advantage is huge yeah yeah absolutely so in that same token there was a general of this conflict who's kind of an unspoken hero lieutenant general poe and his engineers made this movement possible because as sherman was just 
marching. There were many roads that were blown out, bridges that didn't work, rivers that needed to be forded or pontooned that would have been very prohibitive to this march actually succeeding in a timely fashion. And it needed to succeed in a timely fashion for it to be successful and for, for them not to be able to respond in an effective manner. So this general and his engineers were one of the quintessential factors as to why this campaign went the way that it did. When we're talking about like fording people across a river, remember we're talking tens of thousands of people here. This is not it's 20 not guys on a raft. It's not this Oregon is... Trail style? Yeah, no, well, yeah you don't exactly. want it to be. You don't want it to be. <laughs> it's going to go real badly for you if it's Oregon Trail. Yeah, you want it to be organized. And so, yeah, it was. It was organized, and they were able to move much quicker than they would have been normally. Another thing that contributed to their innate knowledge of the area is that Sherman's personal escort were members of the 1st Alabama Cav Regiment, which is to say that yes. these were, these were uh, Alabamans who had remained loyal to the Union, when secession was declared. And so they were locals. They knew the area and they knew the peoples and that sort of thing. And so they were indispensable. Oh, when, yeah. When I mean, they grew up knowledge. near this place. Like, yep. yep. Just across the border. Good men on the inside. So they were moving through. And after they left Atlanta, they wanted to confuse their enemy. This is the diversion we were talking about. And they had the numbers to do so. They knew that their enemy was not going to be capable of bringing a massive force against them. And so Sherman chose to divide his army in two and move them in such a way that it was confusing as to what his final objective was. He could have been going to Macon, he could have been going to Augusta, he could have been going to Savannah. The options were all there. And so this made the forces that were in the area not be able to predict exactly where he was going and then prepare accordingly in that place. Mm -hmm. But even despite this deception, they still hit multiple snags going through, which they did overcome. The losses were always much heavier for the Confederates, just because, again, you had a, a large organized force that was moving through and they were trying desperately to stop them. But when they arrived at Savannah, finally, they found Hardy entrenched there heavily with 10,000 troops. Now, again, you're talking about roughly 60,000 against 10,000. That's a massive numeric advantage. But when your enemy has very well-fortified ground, that number starts to be less significant. And again, Sherman is in hostile territory with no means of reprovisioning himself beyond what he's been doing living off the land. And so he instead chooses to dispatch cavalry to Fort McAllister, which is guarding the, and I'm sorry, Georgians, I'm going to butcher this, Ogeechee River? I think it's Ogeechee. Tell me how I'm supposed to pronounce that, because when I went down south, they loved commenting on my quote-unquote Canadian accent. Canadian <laughs> accent. Everybody called me Canadian. I'm from Montana. We're close, but we're, we're Americans. Canada's boot. Yeah, we're Canada's south. Give us their healthcare and I'll take it. Dude. <laughs> but, so he dispatches it, they grab it, and in the hopes of unblocking their route and linking up with the Navy, because the Navy was very important here for taking Savannah in the first place on account of the fact that they didn't really bring a whole lot of heavy guns on this march. And so laying siege to a city without heavy guns is virtually impossible. Like, you're just throwing stones at them at that point. You can't really bomb them out in any convincing manner. And so he manages to. Again, this, this attack is successful. They take Fort McAllister and he manages to, to link up with the Navy. They get the surround, and on December 17th, he offers his terms. Now, I thought this was rather interesting. Do you have the quote up right now for the letter that he sent to Hardy? Oh, his letter to, oh, his letter to Hardy or his letter to Lincoln? His letter to Hardy. So, on December 17th, he told Hardy, 
I have already received guns that can cast heavy and destructive shots as far as the heart of your city. Also, I have for some days held and controlled every avenue by which the people and garrison of Savannah can be supplied, and I am therefore justified in demanding the surrender of the city of Savannah and its dependent forts and shall wait a reasonable time for your answer before opening with heavy ordnance. Should you entertain the proposition, I am prepared to grant liberal terms to the inhabitants and garrison, but should I be forced to resort to assault or the slower and surer process of starvation, I shall then feel justified in resorting to the harshest measures, and shall make little effort to restrain my army, burning to avenge the national wrong to which they attach Savannah and other large cities, which have been prominent in dragging our country into civil war. So, nice, dramatic, to the point, a typical Sherman style, and it absolutely had an effect. Hardy, instead of mounting a defense or a counteroffensive, escapes. <laughs> on, Just on, leaves. Just on, gone. on the 20th, he escapes from the city, and on the very next day, December 21st, the mayor and city council members come out to accept the terms of this surrender to Sherman, ending the march to the sea. That's really interesting. His use of words, very specific. There is a soft exit given in that letter. Oh, yeah. He's like... You willing to give in or do I have no, to No, 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 no. From my point, if I was to receive that letter, I'd know he's not going to attack. He says in there, he's like, or we'll just let you starve. Like, that is not an option that someone that is about to blast you ever says. But it's also not an option that you want to have. No, it's of like course either not. Either we're going to get blown off the map or we're going to starve to death. Like, these, are not, these no. are not good places to be. But it was telling. And that's why he got out. That's why he didn't even try to engage or, it, you know, he's just like, nope, they're effing with RS. Let's get out of here. I bet anything. Oh, it could be. I mean, I think it also plays into something that both Machiavelli and Sun Tzu have suggested, that when you have your enemy surrounded, you make sure to provide them with a point of egress. Because a person who is cornered, a person who is truly cornered, will fight to the death. Oh yeah, they'll, they'll punch. fight very fiercely. Like, there's been many battles in history that have been turned around because people have been like, well, there's no hope, time to fight really hard. And then they do, and they pull it out. Whereas here it was like, oh, we're definitely giving you an out. There's definitely an out here. I mean, people were wanting to take it. Who wants oh, yeah. to fight to the yeah. death when you don't have to fight to the death? Yeah, and it's smart. I mean, it caused it without any kind of... Additional you know, destruction at exactly. that point. Exactly. Yeah. Which no, is... it was exactly what he wanted. Perfect. And and then he took the city of Savannah. And I believe you have the, the letter on that one as well. This is a letter that he sent to Lincoln on December 26th. So yeah, five days after the surrender. Telegraph to President Lincoln, I beg to present you as a Christmas gift the city of Savannah, with 150 heavy guns and plenty of ammunition and about 25,000 bales of cotton. That is a lot. That, that is, is a lot of material, right? That is a lot of Christmas gift to offer the leader of a nation. And also the whole campaign leading up to it was also extremely telling because after this, it winds up pretty quick. They rest here for about a month and then they set off north through the Carolinas. And very shortly after that, Johnson surrenders to Sherman and Lee surrenders to Grant and the Civil War is brought to a close. Yeah, so, the back was broken here. Mm -hmm. Now, what we haven't talked about was the sheer cost of what occurred because as we've said, they've been moving through and they've been destroying roads and rail line and telegraphs and farms but we haven't really been talking about just the level of destruction that was wreaked upon this this area of the country. I did read a thing here that I think is noteworthy because we're about to talk about how horrible this was. And it, it was. It was absolutely horrible. Sherman apparently didn't directly target civilians. He didn't want to, yeah. He would target, as you said, 
train stops, telegrams, stuff that would cause untold damage, but he wasn't walking into the town square and opening fire. That being said, farms were definitely being sacked and oh, burned. No, Oh, yeah, I am not yeah. pretending this is in any way good. I just saw an argument of, like, this could have been so much worse. It could have been. Again, there, there was some restraint that was shown, because obviously they wanted to bring the people into the Union with them. But the reaction was, I mean, he's a controversial figure. Like oh, we, yeah, like that, we were that's saying really the, what it is. It's just... At the beginning here, like when I was growing up and learning about the Civil War, I learned that Sherman was kind of a hero because he marched, this march ended the Civil War, the bloodiest conflict in American history. And so that's the way it was sold to me. And then when I moved to the South, I saw a completely different narrative of people whose states, whose homes had been destroyed by this action. And there's a, a lot of, of trauma still There's a national there. scar. Yeah, there's a or national an scar. For area it. scar. Yeah. It is national because it affects everyone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, even their pain from it affects us. You know? A century and a half later, we're still feeling the results of the Civil War here. Politically, absolutely. And in a very material way, there were elements of decline that persisted up until the 1920s. That's 55 years of measurable detriment from this action occurring. So much. And, and there was even a mixed slave reaction, because again, the, one of the big things that's talked about is him liberating the slaves as he was going through, which obviously was a good thing. You yeah. Know, that was one of the better things that came of the war. But the slaves themselves had a mixed reaction. Some of them absolutely saw him as a liberator. But some of them just saw him as a despoiler that was rampaging through the countryside. And many of them suffered in the same ways that their masters did as their homes and their livelihoods burned. Yet freeing the slaves and then leaving them in the place with their masters and all the broken stuff, it's better? It's still bad. And not all of them stayed either. 10,000 of them, roughly 10,000 of them, followed Sherman. And hundreds of those died from hunger, disease, and exposure. And by exposure, we mean disease. Yeah. <laughs> From the marshes and stuff that they were going well, through. Well, and a lot of this was December, January, right. February. So exposure could be a lot more, you know. I mean, it's South Carolina, but it's still winter. Yeah. It's still winter. Winter's never fun if you don't have what you need for it. Overall, Sherman ended up inflicting, in that day's currency, Sherman inflicted roughly $100 million worth of damage. Today, that translates to $1.4 billion. That is so much. That is a lot of money worth of damage. And only one-fifth of that was used to the army's advantage. As we were talking about these bummers, as they were called, the, the scroungers going out and getting things for the army, only one-fifth of this destruction resulted in the army enriching itself. The rest of it was just destruction, for destruction's sake. When we're talking about destruction, we're talking about 300 miles of rail line, bridges, and telegraph lines. We're talking about seizing 5,000 horses, 4,000 mules, and 13,000 head of cattle, 9.5 million pounds of corn, and 10.5 million pounds of fodder. That's... And the number of gins and cotton mills that were destroyed in this time is beyond counting. It's beyond counting the amount of agricultural damage that actually occurred here. Again, elements of this decline persisted up into the 1920s. That's 55 years later. I think one thing we don't get about the Civil War a lot, because we tend to think of it as two armies walk up and start shooting each other, is how often that happened. Right. We were looking this up in not just Sherman's thing, but in the length of the Civil War, which is, what, four or five years long? Mm-hmm. For 10,000 battles happened. Right. That's like several battles. I'm too tired to do the math there for it. That's, but it's several battles. battles a day. That's a lot of battles. <laughs> and over the course of it, again, we've talked about it being the most impactful war in terms of human lives that we've had as a nation, as America. And over the estimates today are around 850,000 people died 
And we're going to come back real quick to that idea of camps real fast as mm-hmm. well, because this whole thing ties together. Because when we talked about camping in a good spot, camping with excess to things, camping thinking about your people, or roughly two thirds of the people who died in the Civil War died from non battlefield related things. We're talking cholera, dysentery, other infections, other diseases that came from living in that environment for that long, exposure, hunger. These were all major killers during this conflict. It was a horribly destructive conflict. That's You, you said the numbers were 800,000 people, total dead, two-thirds. That's like fifty or 500,000 people. That's a lot of people. That's a half million people. That's half of Montana. Yep. Dying Di- from not being shot. Yeah. <laughs> Dying from the flu or... Yeah possibly were shot and then it got infected Mm -hmm. infection took so many people out well because they didn't have the sanitary practices that they do now germ theory was not widely accepted at that time antiseptics were not widely carried or used whiskey was one of the big ones you're trying to tell me there's tiny little critters all over me trying to eat me alive you're crazy (laughs) but they were and they did (laughs) (laughs) a lot a lot. So, like we said, total war always brings with it a mixed bag. Machiavelli recommends it as a way to, to attack an enemy without attacking their army. But I think it should also be considered the human cost of it. You can look at it and say that the Union won. That it brought an end about to the one of the most bloody conflicts in American history. And you could also say that it was a terrible action that cost a lot more human lives and suffering than was necessary. I think both, both of those things would are be true. true. Yeah. Both are true. Yeah. So that's Sherman's March to the Sea. You guys got anything else to, to add on that one? No, that's... That's about it. I'm no, it's... No. no. It's fine. Go on. Odie's steaming over there. He's Dude, just it's steaming. just... Man, I just... I hate solutions like that. Like, regardless of how tough the enemy is or how badly you think they're treating their people, especially when it's the other half of your country... And and that's the thing, too, is when we were talking about the impact, when we look at the effect of the firebombing on Europe, the Marshall Plan, which was very costly, had to be enacted in order to rebuild that infrastructure. The money that was poured into Japan to rebuild the infrastructure was the same thing here. You had the the reconstruction that occurred in the South, and, and it still wasn't stabilized for another 55 years. Like, that's it. Again, if you're a commander, the cost needs to be considered. Oh, yeah. It needs to be considered. The scars are just insane. But we want to end on a positive note. (laughs) Only announced it with a sneeze. Excuse me. So this was our 20th episode. That's really exciting to me that that we got 20 episodes. It's one of those good landmark ones. Yeah, a little milestone. So thank you for for joining us for our 20th episode. It's been a lot of fun making these 20 episodes, and I'm looking forward to making a ton more for you. I know the fellas are as well. I was about to say, I'm looking forward to 20 more, but that's... Not that long, so... 20 more, and then 20 more, and then 20 more, and then 20 more. We're going to be doing this for a while, y'all. There's a lot of material. Many more. There's a lot of material. So many books on this subject. when you start looking, like, you will not run out. Like, we will will never run out of material. And then, of course, with everything else we want to do, with covering events and and unit happenings and all that, be sure to stay tuned. We've got exciting things planned. And in line with that, we have a poll-up on the Facebook group right now to decide which book we're going to do next. At the moment, I believe the instructions of Frederick the Great to his generals is trending. It's winning nine to seven right now. But it's still anybody's game. There's a lot of people on there who haven't voted. So if you have a opinion on what book we do next, please go to our Facebook page and make sure that you make your voice heard. Because at this point, that's the one. I don't think there's anything else. 
Where can you find us? What can you do? Oh, yes. All that good stuff. So we are on Instagram. Art of Wargaming Podcast is our tag. I like to put memes up there with little blurbs about the stuff that we've gone over that week. So please tune in to see what we have to kind of contribute to what we're talking about. Also have an email if you want to reach us or get in touch with us about those questionnaires for either your unit, realm, or event. And that is Podcast at gmail.com. And then we have a Facebook, The Art of Wargaming. There's also other general nerdery stuff. Also, before that, don't forget about our website, TAO Wargaming at, oh, TAO Wargaming.com. TAO Wargaming.com. The Art of Wargaming.com, but just TAO in front. TAOWargaming.com. And then we have our And then we have our other Earverm sites, Earverm being our mother station. I am on General Nerdery, where me and other Earverm member Tyler talk about just whatever nerd thing grabs your attention, as well as any news of the day. And we also have a horror movie podcast that neither of us are in, but it's still pretty good. You should give it a listen to called Fried Squirms. All very good. All worth listening to. And remember, if you like what we're doing here, please repost, like, and subscribe so you can continue getting what we're putting out. But I think for today, this has been Yaga Malark. And Thumbs. And Tony Sheeran. Signing off. <laughs>